union town all down the line this is a union town a union town all down the line this is a union town this is Hugo Romero and you are listening to Welcome to Uniontown with my co-host President Ron Herrera Today we welcome to Uniontown Congresswoman Maxine Waters otherwise known as Auntie Maxine Waters We discuss her early days as a garment worker to a transformational leader in Los Angeles and the country as a civil rights leader and inspirational role model but above all an organizer who's continued to pave the way for workers and a new generation Thank you for joining uh, President Herrera and myself today. Well, I'm so delighted to have been out and have the opportunity to have this conversation and help to know what, what the concerns are that we're still dealing with, uh, things that I'm looking forward to working on, a bit about my background. This is something that I think is so very important as we all go about our daily lives and our work. Sometimes we fail to talk to each other. And so thank you for inviting me this morning. Thank you, of course. And you know, we we wanted to just begin the conversation in these COVID times. Of course, campaigning looks different. Certainly it has for us at the Federation. And one thing you and Ron have in common, you you both rank and file. And in the labor movement when when a leader comes out as you know from the rank and file, it makes all the difference. And for you as a congresswoman it actually as i understand it was not it hasn't been different you you were a garment worker uh you were a teacher uh, that's right and that's garment right. workers that's as right. you know like that's continue right. to suffer today Kate, what was it like that's right. a lot of the issues remain the same what was what were some of the your experiences as a garment worker well you know i started as a teenager in st louis uh, working in the garment industry and i used to be like a, what they call a clipper and i just clipped the hanging threads off of uh the garments. And so I was the lowest uh, worker there. We didn't have any breaks. We didn't have you lunchtime. You could grab a sandwich, but you had to go right back. No benefits, none of that. And of course, they used to rush us to move the, the garments very quickly. And it was almost slave labor. But I was young. I was still in high school working during the summers. And I needed the money because I come from a big family, 12 brothers and sisters with 13 of us. It's rough. And so, yeah, I worked in the garment industry. I know what it's all about. And I know the exploitation. I know that there are people who are trying to survive on very low wages and no benefits and all of that treated unkindly, uh, oftentimes don't have a place to really sit and eat a lunch. Uh, but you know, having come through that, I shall never forget it. I shall never forget from whence I come. And I will always uh, be, you know, available to and working with uh, the grassroots of, these, of, of, of our communities, the people who don't get fancy lobbyists in, in Washington, D.C. to look out for them. It is only those of us who understand our responsibility when we go to Washington or to the California legislature or to any legislative body, it is our responsibility to represent those, but for us would not have any representation. Absolutely. And to that point, we were disappointed that SB 1399 this year here in California was was vetoed and, and did not get through. And it was a bill sponsored by the California Labor Federation with Senator Maria Elena Durazo and it spoke to those issues, Congresswoman, and you know, we'll be back to the fight next year, but that's precisely why we need 
elected officials like yourself that have lived those experiences and get back to it. And one of the times that it, you know, your, your or the organizer and you came out recently uh, in the past four years, it comes out all the time, but you, you made a speech you got a lot of heat for about not letting folks, not letting folks (laughs) eat, not letting them be in the department store. And if we see them, you got to call them out. Right, got to be embarrassed, yep. but it was within the context of separation of families. And you got a lot of heat it was for that. that. It was, yeah, it was in that context, and uh, I just finished a press conference where I was talking about it more. Yes, I got a lot of heat for it. Those haters turned it into me being violent. I was not. I did not say do any harm or violence. I simply said tell them they're not welcome. And so I think that being able. Uh, to think about how you get attention. Many people at that point in time, some of the restaurateurs, others, were really trying to get people's attention about the children who were being, you know, placed in cages and the inhumanity of that and why we should not be doing that. The separation of families is something that should not be tolerated in any society, in any culture. Hey, you know, I came from, uh, you know, a background in the history of slavery, and that's what they did. They separated the families, and they took the boys, and they put them in the fields. They put the women uh, into the house, and they took the children and raised them until they were old enough to go out into the fields and pick cotton. And so that separation issue for me is an issue that should not be tolerated. It is the most inhumane thing that you could do to a family. Absolutely. And I've been a big vocal supporter of building that black-brown unity by tying the issues, right? Tying them to those, how these are related, you know, this has happened right now to largely Latin American families and uh, black immigrants as well from different parts of the Sporian and API families, right? And tying it to the issue of slavery and and how it's not different. Separation of families has been happening for a long time. That's right. You mentioned haters, as we, Ron, yes. Ron knows a thing or two about haters. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it comes from the Teamsters, right? So and Teamsters handle uh, their haters. And I know you're handling uh, your current hater who's running against you. What's going on in your race? Yeah. Well, we have a race uh, where I've been targeted by the Republicans. Of course, they hate me because I called out the president early, said that he should be impeached. I understood that he was a dangerous and divisive human being early on. And I spoke to it. I called him out. I stayed on it. I know that people were not easily uh, influenced to step up to the plate and really deal with that issue. But I kept going. And of course, it created a lot of problems for me. But, you know, Maya Angelou said a lot of things. But she said, courage is the top of all virtues. And so I pride myself on having the courage to do and say and think and act. And this guy has $8 million. Where's he getting this money from? A combination of places. He's getting it from Mississippi and Arkansas and Virginia and all of those places where you have white supremacists and KKK types and just those people who don't believe that people of color uh, should have any influence in this country. And that's what they're being basically dog whistled to by the president of the United States when he talks about making America great again. What he's talking about basically 
is a message to them that he will basically keep his foot on the necks of all everything that's not white and don't have to worry about ever having a black president again or black people in power. You don't have to worry about this stuff called inclusion and diversity and all of that. And so I tell you, the president has done a masterful job of dog whistling and emboldening them. And they are so bold now uh, that they talk about kidnapping the governor of Michigan. It's, we're in some difficult times. Congresswoman, this is Ron. The general public always, you know, recognizes you for who you are today. But you had a start. You had a beginning. You had a crossroads where you, in the, in the uh, garment factory, said, I'm not doing this no yes. anymore. I'm going to run for public yes. office. First, who is your heroine, your hero, to say, I'm not going to live like this. I'm going to make a change. And uh, what motivated you to get into public office? Wow. Now, let me go back a ways to high school. <laughs> In high school, we had a few teachers who were a bit different from the traditional teacher, who was inspiring and motivating and helped us to believe that we were worth something. And even though I didn't understand it all at the time, going into high school, I was there when we had principals and teachers who were focused on civil rights. And I can remember, you know, one of the principals or vice principals in my high school running down the hall uh, when the Supreme Court decision was made about uh, desegregation in the schools. And so I kind of got infused with the idea that something was wrong and that people had to work toward making it right. And that was a part of my coming up, my socialization that never left me. And even though I was married early and had children early, I paid attention. And at some point in time, and I think it was at the, the hosing of the civil rights marchers that just made me jump up from the television and call. I called the NAACP and I started to get involved. I got involved a little bit with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and then paid attention to Fannie Lou Hamer and what she was doing when she challenged the delegation at the Democratic National Convention. All the while, I was getting inspired. And I went to work for Head Start, going to work for Head Start, had the opportunity and the ability uh, to work with parents and to talk about people taking control of their own destiny. And I started organizing with parents and we started going to city council meetings and then the war on poverty came into being and a lot of organizing was going on then. I got hooked up with some of the women in South LA who were on the forefront of doing everything from welfare rights to one woman who would go and literally lay out at the Board of Education, trying to open up educational opportunities and being around these people who were struggling in all these different ways. We had a member of the California Assembly who got into trouble and decided uh, that he was going to retire. And I decided that I was going to run for office. And I was encouraged by women at that time who were coming into politics, uh, the National Organization for Women. 
and the national. She was now NWPC. And then, you know, we had women who were coming out and beginning to talk about women getting more involved. And I got hooked up kind of with Dolores Huerta and Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug and all kind of people. And that's what got me active and involved. And when this man who had gotten into trouble decided that he wasn't going to run for office, the women started telling me, why don't you run? They'd kind of gotten to know me working out with Head Start and in the community and all of that. And I ran against the establishment and ran against everybody and we beat them. And it's, I haven't looked back since that time. Wow. Those were some heavy headers you mentioned there with the folks that you looked up to and worked with. And what's interesting is that in many ways, years from now, folks will reference you, someone that they looked up to and they worked with and that inspired them, right? Especially over the last, in this era of, of Trump era, the number of youth you inspired to mobilize, to reclaiming your time, it really, yeah. it, it was movements. You, you've inspired movements. Well, I'm grateful for the fact that I was adopted by these millennials who um, started calling me auntie. And you know what? I, I, I had to wonder what was going on quite at the time. But you know what? What these young people were saying, we want our elders, we want our leaders to speak truth to power. We want to hear them. We want them to confront it. We don't want them to sit back and be comfortable that maybe they have a decent job. Maybe they have benefits. Maybe they can go on vacation. Look, our future is ahead of us. And many of us have gone to school. We've gone to college. We're people of color. We can't get jobs. We don't know what's, what's in store for us. Where are our leaders? Where and so because I was so motivated to take on Trump because he was the most despicable human being that I'd ever encountered in my life. And that's not exaggerating. I mean, I'd never seen anybody like him. And, and we've so seen some characters. I took him on. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, everything. <laughs> I tell you. And I took him on, and the young people liked that. And they, they were thrilled by it. And they related to that. And that speaking truth to power, I think, is what we must always have an opinion. We must always speak it. Uh, we must speak it so that others will hear us and we can inspire others to speak up and to work and to organize. Organizing is tough, but it's important. It is very important. And one of the things that the history of the labor movement has taught us is that organizing is how you change the world. It's how you change government. It is how you change the legislators who go to the legislators, legislatures uh, with no real agenda, just about themselves. But when they confront organizing efforts and people who tell their stories and who are willing to work for them or against them, that's when things happen. So I'm really at heart. You know, I, I feel I'm a pretty good public policymaker and legislator, but my real, real love is organizing. Congresswoman, you mentioned the fire hoses. I, I remember that. That's Those are visions that bedded in you know our minds. I gave a speech on Saturday, and I tried to connect the labor movement to the civil rights movement. And we have, mm -hmm. we have a proposition right now in California, Prop 16, 
that uh, mm-hmm. deals with affirmative action. But for me, mm-hmm. it, it it deals with with hope and an opportunity mm-hmm. and a chance for a brighter future, fairness. Um, mm-hmm. what, what is your thoughts on Prop 16 and what that brings to us and the, the prejudices around when it was um, restricted, when affirmative action was restricted? Well, what was uh, absolutely painful was to watch the fight against affirmative action in this country and the way that they described affirmative action as basically giving something to people who didn't deserve it, who were not capable, who were not competent. And they talked about it was unfair to give some kind of privileges to these people. They have to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They have to work as if, if, if the very people they were talking about were not the laborers who were doing the work that kept this country going. And so it was so hateful. And they organized, I'm telling you, it was, they really organized to the point where they had people afraid to use the word affirmative action. And then they went on the ballot to ensure that affirmative action would not ever, ever again be tried. And so to have it back at this time is very, very inspiring because I think I saw something happen after the murder of George Floyd up in uh, Minnesota, when the protesters took to the street, black and brown and white and young and old, uh, all different ethnic groups, et cetera, et cetera. It gave me such a glimmer of hope uh, that we were getting poised for change and that people were realizing that there had been so much undermining, so much discrimination, so much unfairness that something really needs to be done. America needs to look at itself. And so this is what that proposition means, that it can come at a time to capture the feelings uh, of people wanting to do something about unfairness. And that's inspiring and hopeful for me. We are in, we are working toward to 16, and yet there seems to be a faction of the community, even folks of color, who don't under who have a sense of you know we, that we live in some form of meritocracy where systemic racism and disadvantages don't exist. What do you tell to young folks or folks of color who are like, I don't want special privileges, and think of affirmative action as some somewhat of a special privilege to get them well, that's, a leg up? That's very interesting because I had a a friend and a family, and they were pretty well off, and their children were in school, and they were going to school uh, as African Americans with pretty much a predominantly white students. They did not want any parts of affirmative action because they had adopted uh, the feelings mm-hmm. that had been put upon them by others that if you take advantage of affirmative action, it means you're not worthy Mm -hmm. that somebody had to give you something and they absolutely ran from it and Mm -hmm. didn't want to hear about it. And they didn't want to be associated with it uh, because they felt that it would be understood that somehow they were less than and that they had to have something special and that people would think they weren't deserving. And I remember talking with, they asked me to talk to their children about it. And I did. I don't know if it ever got through to them, but it was an interesting 
and very difficult thing to do because it was in their minds and in their heads that they cannot be beneficiaries of affirmative action because this would mean they were less than others. Right. It's a great, great question and an interesting discussion. Yeah, you know, we've we've had those because just with family, with, with relatives, you got to have that conversation because it, it's how you end up having, in some cases, poor folks defending corporations, right? That, you know, it's a total misunderstanding of the situation. You spoke on the movement that arose from George Floyd and a lot, you know, we've, we've seen now the murder of uh, black and brown folks for years and we've seen gun violence at schools, right? So you see these movements, you see these tragedies happen. There's uprising and throughout your career, you've seen these, these uprisings and movements. And yet, uh, Systemic change has not come through. Uh, how do you think we sustain it moving forward? Everybody's got to be involved in it. It cannot be left to black people or brown people, but whites have got to step up to the plate. Our progressive friends who tell us all the time that they're with us, they understand it, they are part of the movement. We've got to have them doing what we do as we fight for it as we try to create a public policy through legislation, as we march, all of that. Everybody who says that they want to change got to be involved in it. And so it's not going to be sustained until we get into the cross-section that we need. And I think it's there. Uh, And I think what we saw with the protests was an awareness and an awakening uh, that some people have said, you know, I know this is wrong but I haven't done anything and I'm going to do something. And I've seen signs of that and we've got to encourage that. And that's the only way we can sustain it. Congresswoman, without a doubt, you're the exception. And a lot of people, just normal people think that no way can I become Maxine. No way. And is there any chance that I'll be able to have the courage that, that you project Uh, nationally. But what do we tell a young person? How do we tell a young black woman, you know, a young Latina, what do we say to encourage her to be like you? Well, here's what I think. I think what we have to do is not have expectations uh, that they will adapt my same tactics in the way that I do things. But what we have to tell them, everybody's got something. Everybody has something to contribute. And you may be an artist and your art may depict, you know, discrimination and hatred and violence. You may be a homemaker uh, who is basically just raising your children and you are telling them the difference between racism and discrimination. You're rearing your children in different ways than what many of these children have been reared, where they have watched their parents even uh, do discriminatory and racist things. And being a good example, you could be somebody uh, that's out here working as a janitor, working on some job where you're interacting with other janitors and you're talking about what can we do What can we do working in this building together? And one of the things that people forget about what they can do. I talk to taxi cab drivers in Washington when I'm riding back and forth between my house and the Capitol. And they tell me 
the conversations that go on in their camps by diplomats, by leaders of government, and they tell me what they're thinking and what they're doing. We have people who work in ways where they hear and see things every day, but they don't share it with anybody. They're not connected in anything. So what we said to the average person, you've got something that you can do and get connected with an organization. Get connected with an organization that's about the ability of change so that you you don't have to do everything, but you can speak to someone else. You can share information. You can tell them what you heard, what you learned, uh, and use your talent, whatever it is, in order to contribute uh, to the movement and to change. I believe that. I really do believe that we all have something. We got to get in touch with it. We got to get in touch with and we got to get grounded. Now, you take, for example, a good example of that is the niece of Trump who wrote a book. And because she wrote a book, she's been encouraged to come to interviews. I don't know if you've seen her, but she saw something was wrong with her uncle and the way that he conducted himself and the way that he defined himself. As a young child, she was taking all that in. She put it in a book, and now she's doing interviews, and she is revealing that what he is like and what he has done when nobody else is even looking. And I just think that we all have something we can contribute in different ways. Yes, absolutely. I love that you said that because a lot of people think of activism or organizing as, as the person with the megaphone, right? But there's the arts, yeah. the comms, the speech writing, the organizing, yes. the logistics, everything from ordering the food to the speeches to just everything, the fundraising, right. to all of it. That That's you know, right. there's all of it. <laughs> I laughed about you mentioning Trump's knees because one of my favorite things in local elections, <laughs> and, and you know, when you're canvassing in local elections, you occasionally knock on the door of some of the one of the candidates' relatives. <laughs> And they'll be like, hell no, I ain't voting for that guy. He's my cousin. <laughs> like, I ain't voting for that guy. I hate him. You occasionally run into those. Yeah. But now I have a woman who's the aunt of my opposition, and she came past my headquarters, and she said, yeah, I'm his aunt, but on my Facebook, I said, don't vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh God. So well, one of my favorite things is when people pull receipts, and I've heard one of your radio ads, you know, driving around, and I saw you pulled some receipts on Joe Collins. Can you tell us about some of those receipts? Well, a lot of communicating is about uh, keeping up with the way that people communicate, and the millennials and all have ways of communicating and words that they use uh, that helps you to communicate with them. And so stay woke and receipts and some of that I got from them. <laughs> and I use it in ways that helps me to communicate better than I'd be able to with, if I didn't know the language of some of these young people. And it, it seems to connect. And I love learning about it. And I love using it. And uh, some of the stuff that I have said, reclaiming my time, is not new. It is part of the, the jargon of the, of the legislature, of uh, Congress, and getting the opposition who, speaking on your time, to just shut up. And so it just so happened that I used it forcefully and over and over again, and people finally heard it. 
They probably heard it. We've been saying it, but the way that I used it, it caught on. And so reclaiming my time is on buttons and shirts and all, all kind of stuff. <laughs> Great. And we are uh, now a week away. I was telling Ron from this time, from you know when this airs, it'll be less time, but seven out, seven days and eight hours away. Yes. Uh, how yes. are you spending your last week? You know, especially, you know, normally it's, it's a bit different with, without COVID guidelines, but how are you spending this last week? I'm sure it's full schedule. Well, I've been, I've been, well, I've been spending the last week um, really trying to figure out how I could get some last minute communications out. And I've decided that some of what we're going to do that we would be sending through the mail, we're going to walk it. We're going to walk it. And we don't have to go into anybody's homes. We can knock on doors and drop stuff that kind of way. But the other thing is, I've been thinking about organizing. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking about how to organize with some human billboards. And I got hmm. this from Cesar. Cesar Chavez really created, uh, you know, standing at the freeways and stuff with what, is, what we call human billboards. You have the big billboards and they're being held by, held by an individual. So I've been thinking about, about that, how to get young people to do some of the human billboards. I've been thinking about how to get young people to work in the communities where they live. You know, I've got Westchester, for example, and the kids at Loyola University. And I'm thinking about how, when you start talking about getting out here and doing work, it's more comfortable to them to do it in the areas that they're familiar with. So I'm thinking about how we're going to get them out doing some of the human billboard work. And I'm trying to get into Playa Vista that they don't want to in. But I think I got enough young people to get in those hallways and slip something under the doors and on and on and on. That's what I'm thinking about organizing. Yeah. Get out the vote. Wow. It's very innovative and, and look forward to see how it comes out. I'm sure, I'm sure we will learn about it. So, I hope so. I hope so. As you know, we got uh, one of our very own and, and Kamala Harris, you know, being the yes. vice presidential pick. And her yep. teamed up with your seniority in Congress and with President yep. Biden. I'm sure we we have good stuff ahead of us, hopefully, and we'll continue to work till the last hour. What are some of those priorities uh, when back in Congress with hopefully a Democratic Senate, Democratic House, and a Democratic administration? We have a number of, house, uh, of priorities. Housing is one of them. Housing, you know, this homelessness, it's got to be stopped. We have got to, and I'm convinced, and I've started to think about why it is that the systems that we're using do not work. You know why they don't work, I think? is because we expect people who are homeless to find the right office or to pick up the telephone and call somebody and get the services that they need. The people who are out on the street who are mentally incapacitated, who are disabled, they, they can't call anybody. They can't go anywhere. And the so-called outreach is not getting to them because they're very visible. They're sleeping on mattresses and, and rags and blankets out here uh, in medians. Uh, and nobody is doing anything about that, even though everybody understands that we have so many people who are compromised with mental, mental illness. So this has got to be a big part of it. For me, I think every homely person needs a social worker to deal with them and their families. And that costs money. 
And that means that that social worker knows every resource there is to know and know how to transition people from the street. And I don't care whether or not we have to put wash stations out here to clean them up and get them somewhere to a hospital, to a, a protected living situation with protected service. I don't care what it is. This system has got to change. And so I'm thinking about homelessness. I have a huge bill for $13 billion to end homelessness forever. But we got to put together the systems that will make it work. The systems that will recognize that whatever we're doing now is not working. So housing and homelessness is a big issue for me. Predatory lending, where people lost their homes in 2008, the big banks and financial institutions, we had these exotic products that caused people to lose their homes. I will continue uh, to pay attention to that with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau getting strengthened again. And another thing that I want to do is I want to talk with Biden and Harris about things that are not talked about, but you know something needs to be done about it other than, say, homelessness. I just had a press conference where we talked about the over 500 children that are separated from their parents, and they don't know where the parents are. Now, I think it's important for the White House to have a special office. And they did did this with the Jewish community. They had a special office to go after those who were responsible for uh, what happened with the Jewish community. And many of those had in hiding in other countries, what have you. But they traced some of them down and they were able to get them. The same way I'm thinking about finding parents. That means that you have to put together something that will basically put out a way by which you search in all of the countries uh, from which these children and their parents came from trying to get in the United States before they were separated. I don't care if it's Guatemala. I don't care if it's Central America. I don't care if it's the border countries, what have you, Mexico. We've got to put together an effort to find those parents because I want to tell you, those children who are separated from their parents who never had the opportunity to to, uh, bond uh, with their parents will never be right. And I've seen it. It will never be right. They may end up in a situation where they can be adopted. They may end up in a situation where they have these temporary homes, what have you. But I saw what happened when there was a connection between a parent and a child at the border that had been separated. The child The mother ran toward the child. The child did not run toward the mother. The mother hugged the child. The child looked off in the distance and did not relate because the bond had been broken. And the children feel deserted. They don't know what caused them to be deserted. They know that their parents are not there. And they left them. And they left them unprotected. And so I want an office inside the president's office with the sole responsibility of reconnecting these children with their parents. That is so profound. That's one of the, you know, that's some of the thinking that I have. You know, I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of different things, but there's some things that keep me awake nights and keep in my mind, uh, keep me thinking about them. And those are some of the issues that do. And it's one of the reasons why uh, we admire you so much. We support you. You are our leader, just not in your district. 
you're you're a national leader, you're a legislator, you're a congresswoman, you're a civil rights leader, just a whole array of, of different strengths that you have. But with that said, I want to thank you for being on the program, number one, but I want to, I want to end with this because you are our endorsed candidate and we yes. support you to, to the end of the earth. But tell us, quick, yes. tell us quickly why you, not your opponent. I already know, but I want Los Angeles, <laughs> I want your district, I want everybody to know the difference between you and that person that even thinks that they can put their name next to yours. Wow, you're so kind. Well, thank you for that question. And I'd like to start off, it will sound as if I'm not being as humble as I should be, but I want to tell you that my life has been about fairness and justice for all. My life has been about not being able to tolerate people taking, being taken advantage of, whether you're poor or whether you're a person of color or whether you're handicapped. I just don't believe uh, that we should tolerate anybody being taken advantage of. And this is what sticks with me. A bully from the time I was in school who would take advantage of other kids or the fact that a family in St. Louis where I was raised didn't have any food or whether it is somebody being imprisoned unfairly and don't get a chance for justice. These things are really what moves me. And so I have demonstrated this throughout my career and I have demonstrated this in the legislation that I have proposed and got one, uh, you know, and one uh, in the California state legislature and in the Congress of the United States of America. And so I have worked on legislation. I've been successful on a lot of that legislation, uh, both in, again in the state and in Congress. And I have also stayed with the community. I am in the streets. I go to small meetings and big meetings. I work with uh, people uh, who are just today uh, protesting the post office, not getting their mail and being treated badly and being told if you want to get your mail, you got to come to the post office and get it. We're not coming to your street anymore. And knowing that the president had a hand and making sure that they dissected uh, these uh, the machines that were supposed to do the sectioning of the mail, and that he has someone that he's put in charge to basically undermine uh, the post office, being afraid of mail-in votes. But, you know, these people call me, and they tell me what's happening. And I met with a group of all from a street and a neighborhood, and we had the postmaster out here. We had the regional director out here, and we had the... Uh, head of the post office here. And not only did we tell them about uh, how fair it is not to get that mail, and they made a commitment to stop it, to do something about it. And they went in there and started sorting out their mail today and people coming out with weeks of mail that hadn't been delivered to them. The postmaster guaranteed them it would not happen again, no matter what was going on in their communities. And so I uh, respond uh, to community people and I have to let them know that they didn't send me to Congress for myself, uh, that this is an empowerment that I have to empower others. And I use my power. And so I think that I have demonstrated in the best way possible uh, that I'm deserving 
of being elected and reelected, that not only do I accept responsibility, I demonstrate on a daily basis that I care and I'm concerned and I'm willing to work on behalf of people. My opponent uh, is a young man with no experience. As a matter of fact, he didn't do right serving in the Navy and got a dishonorable discharge. And when we take a look at the investigations that they did on him and the fact that he uh, tried to misuse the resources of the Navy and the website because he thought so much of himself that he was going to run from, for president of the United States off of the Navy base using their technology and everything else was warned uh, that he could not do that, uh, disregarded uh, his commander, as a matter of fact, you know, treated him pretty badly. And so when they investigated, they discovered that he'd created a nightclub in his apartment on the base where he was serving liquor to minors. And the wow. man has children that he is not paying child support for in four different states uh, that he's resisting. One right here in California, in San Diego. And I've been to San Diego. I went to the uh, United States uh, uh, courthouse. I went to uh, the Superior Court and I went to Child Welfare Services. I have the receipts, I know all of this to be true. We were just listening to him on ABC where he has some kind of a podcast where he was cursing me out. Uh, he was out of control. He doesn't have the temperament, the knowledge, the experience, or the background that is so checkered. He would be a disaster for this 43rd Congressional District. And so that's why I feel comfortable in asking people to reelect me. Absolutely. And those are certainly some some very CVS long-like receipts that you have on him, um, Congresswoman. <laughs> we want to wrap up, and of course, thank you. And everything you said is absolutely true. We see it all the time, or our affiliates see it all the time, our members see you out there. You talk the talk and you walk the walk. In fact, we've been told you are legendary for walking the King Parade in high heels, seven miles, <laughs> seven miles. So we're, we're with COVID shutting the parade down, we're certainly going to miss seeing you out there. But there is footage of you walking the walk, seven miles in high That's heels. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, no, we, I do it because I was, my legs are strong. I was an athlete when I was young. Not that we had any training, but that was all we had uh, to entertain ourselves and to involve ourselves in our neighborhoods. We had a community center. I swam in that community center uh, a swimming pool every day during the summer. I ran track. I played volleyball. I played basketball. I did all of that, and it made my legs strong. And so I love high heels, and so I walk it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can barely do it in tennis shoes. I can barely do it in tennis shoes. Well, you've left us uh, inspired, uh, motivated. You know, it's the kind of energy you, you hope for seven days out of an election, uh, Congresswoman. And and we we're just looking forward to continuing to work with you and and with uh, God willing, a new administration, um, you know, and the, it, it, everything we've done is hopefully going to yield positive results come election night. Um, and, you know, we look forward to continuing the good work for all the issues you you've addressed and um, uh, today. And you left this wanting an encore. You know, we we hope to have you back well, yes. after the election. And, yes. And yes. One last thing, right? Our comms director is your biggest fan. He, I mean, he geeked out when he heard you were doing our. His name's Christian Castro, and it's his birthday today. So 
I told him I'd, I'd ask oh. if you could say happy birthday to Christian Castro, <laughs> our contractor. He geeked out. <laughs> Absolutely. Happy, happy birthday, Christian. I want you to have a fabulous day. Enjoy yourself and just have a good time. Happy, happy birthday. Thank you, Congresswoman. We, we'll, we'll let you get back to it. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your organizing. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And it's because of the history of organized labor that we've gotten to where we are today. I shall never forget it. I'll never forget those who stood by the plant door. I'll never forget those who stayed up all night. I'll never forget those who had the nerve and the courage to front management, to front government, and to make change in our society. And you've done it. And you've made life so much better for so many people. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Congresswoman. Appreciate you. Welcome. Goodbye now. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town. Hey, this is President Ron Herrera, thanking you and my co-host, Brother Hugo Romero, for joining us on this episode of Welcome to Uniontown.